So Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 42, and it's a a story that you guys are more than familiar with. You probably have heard this many, 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 many times uh, in your churches, probably from Bethany herself and and different ones. And I do feel like it's a a unique word for even the J-Hop Boston community, though it doesn't just apply to the J-Hop Boston community. But I just felt like this is the word I want to encourage you guys with today. It's the story of a young woman named Mary Bethany, verse 38, and you know this story, but I just want to tell it to you from my perspective. So verse 38 says, now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. So this is the story. I just want to tell it to you, Brian's standard version, all right? So you see Jesus walking into a town that we know is called Bethany. It's not named here yet. He says, now a certain town, a certain village, a certain woman. And later on, it's going to tell us who this, you know, the, the story of the family of this certain village and, the, and in this certain village. And, but the way I see it is Jesus is walking into Bethany as he's on in doing his ministry trip and ministry journey. And he's been laboring, he's been working, and he comes to, to Martha's house and you have to recognize that at this point in, in Jesus' ministry, it tells us in Matthew chapter 4, the end of Matthew chapter 4, that his fame begins to spread all throughout Judea, Jerusalem, Syria, and the surrounding region. That at this point, Jesus is already healing the sick. He's already beginning to minister and powerfully preach the gospel of the kingdom, teaching in the synagogues that which is about to happen. And it says that big crowds begin to follow Jesus during this time. The way I think of it is Jesus has somehow attained Hebrew rock status. And he's a a well-known figure now inside of Jerusalem, a well-known figure inside of Judea, and all of the Israelites are beginning to turn their attention towards him. In fact, the attention was once on a man named John the Baptist, but at the height of John the Baptist's ministry, the attention shifted. Why? Because John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. A man can receive nothing unless he's received it from heaven. And the focus begins to shift towards Jesus where all of Judea begins to go out to Jesus. And so when you see him walking into Martha's house, he's usually not walking by himself. At the very least, he has his 12 disciples with him at this time. And in fact, he carries such an entourage with him that when Jesus comes to your house, sometimes, you know, you lose your roof (laughs) because people are trying to to press in and get in just to hear him. I mean, there's such a magnetic personality that he carries that Jesus can walk and he can look at Andrew and Peter with one word. He said, come and follow me. And it says they immediately they left their nets, their livelihood, their financial security. And they followed him. That There's something magnetic about Jesus that the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judea are getting to touch when he's there. And so when he gets to Martha's house, he has this like, ginormous entourage with him. And so Martha sees Jesus, recognizes 
the man he is, the Messiah that was promised, the Messiah to come, and wants to serve Jesus. You see, serving Jesus is not a bad thing. In fact, we're all called to serve Jesus and to meet real human needs. That that's part of being a Christian is to care for the orphan and the widow, the poor and the pressed of the earth, that we are actually called to serve more than anybody in the earth. And as he, she's going, it's, Martha is wanting to serve Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you can almost imagine she's running back from her kitchen to the dining room, the living room, whatever houses looked like back then, and running back from the kitchen, and she's sweating, and she's laboring to feed Jesus and the, 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 the ragtag band of disciples that are following him. But then as one time, as she's bringing the food back or she's carrying her food plates away, she catches Mary out of the corner of her eye. And she sees that Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And it says that, he's, that she's listening to his word. I can imagine this because I have a big sister. And big sisters, if you don't have one, they're great, but they can be very, very scary sometimes. <laughs> because big sisters, when you're not doing something you're supposed to be doing, and then they're picking up the slack for you, I promise you they let you know it every single time. And I can imagine that Mary is sitting there at the feet of Jesus and just enthralled and engrossed in listening to the words of Jesus. But I bet out of the corner of her eye, she also catches Martha out of the corner of her own eye. And so I can imagine Mary sitting there. She sees Mary catch her eye. Mary probably just moves a little bit. So next time, she doesn't have to see Martha catching her eye the next time. And she could just stay completely enthralled and engrossed at sitting at Jesus' feet. And I love Martha. I know people beat Martha up all the time, but I love Martha. And the Lord loves Martha. It says in John 11, it says, Martha, whom he loved. And, and, and Martha, I love Martha because she's bold. I like Martha because she has no fear of man, it seems like. In fact, it's like almost like she has no fear of God because she knows that Jesus is the Messiah. And instead of going to Mary... At least the testimony doesn't tell us this. Instead of going to Mary, which would be the logical thing, you know, you would think to do, Martha instead goes right up to Jesus as he's teaching and interrupts, taps him on the shoulder. This is Jesus. You know, I'm really serving really hard right now. Good thing, right? Yeah. But Mary, my younger sister, she's sitting at your feet. So why don't you tell her to help me? I mean, just love the boldness that Martha has in approaching the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and saying, hey, you're doing something, but hey, she needs to be doing something. And go tell her to help me, will you? Kind of annoyed, probably, with Jesus even. And I love Jesus' response here. Because the thing I want to talk about is just the tenderness of Jesus that we see when he is with his friends and how he feels about his friends. That when he's with Martha, he's not angrily saying something where he goes, Martha, what's wrong with you, woman? Your hummus, it's not that good anyways. You know, it's not like, I know, really loud, sorry. It's big cathedral. It's, he's not this angry, angry God. Instead, he says her name twice. He says, Martha, Martha. And here's the thing. When you see the Lord say someone's name twice, it's not in anger or rebuke. It is a correction that he usually is bringing, but it's a tenderness in his voice. Why? How do we know this? He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. 
Or Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am the Lord. It's hard to kick against the goads. Or Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you in like the mother hen gathers in her chicks. That even though the Lord is bringing correction in all these times, there's a tenderness in the voice of God, even in bringing correction to Martha at this time, where he wants her to, to understand what he's saying to her right now. is not to hear the, the, the frustration or the uh, impatience in his voice. No, he's not frustrated or impatient. He just wants to turn Martha's attention to something. And he says this, he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. And he points to the issue. He's not pointing to the issue of service. Again, we are really called to serve people and to meet real needs. And when we've encountered Jesus, we want to obey his commandments because it's in obeying his commandments that we show that we love him. To love me is to obey my commandments. It's not some sentimental feeling of love and emotion that defines that we love God in a certain way. No, to love him is to obey his commandments. But here was the issue that Martha had. It wasn't that she was serving, it's that she was distracted. And in an American culture that's so easily distracted, I'm just thinking of things like video games. I mean, our generation, young people, we, all we had to, to wrestle through was television primarily. But today with internet and Twitter and Facebook, we have no ability to even sit lovingly at the feet of Jesus and meditate on, uh, meditate on him and his presence for a long period of time. We're so, it's what Thomas Friedman, this New York Times writer, says that this generation's danger is continuous partial attention. That we're continually attentive to something, but it's only partial attention is that the human soul has become so fractured with information and distractions that we don't even have the ability to focus on things anymore. We're so distracted. We're so distracted at being the best video game player. Who cares if you're good with your thumbs? Spending hours and hours on your, with your thumbs. Who cares I just don't get this. I, I, I run into young men all the time who tell me, I want to be a man of God. You know, would, you would you disciple me? Would you walk with me? Would you, would you, you know, how do you be a man of God? I'm thinking, I'm trying to figure that out too. But I look at their lives and I'm thinking, well, the first thing, stop commenting on cute little girls' pictures on Facebook. That's so dorky. That's so goofy to me. Oh, you're so cute. That's so cute. It just makes no sense to me. The distraction that this generation has. And this is what the Lord is confronting even in Martha's, Martha's life. And he said, Martha, Martha, you were worried and troubled about many things. And then Jesus says this. He says, but one thing is needed. Only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. See, every single time we see the Lord with Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany is always having to display her passion for Jesus. But in the display of her passion for Jesus, every single time we see her in Scripture, the Lord has to vindicate her. The Lord has to vindicate that posture of trust and dependence 
that Mary has on the Lord. And this is one of those times that Mary is being vindicated by Jesus for the posture and the passion that she pours out to him and that she exhibits to him. And she says this, Martha, Martha, you were worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part. If there's only one thing out of the Lord's mouth, he says only one thing is necessary. There's so many things that you could be doing. There's so many good things in the earth today. He says, but there's only one thing that's necessary. And Mary has chosen that good part. Listen, nobody can choose the good part for you. In God's sovereignty, he will not even force you to choose relationship with him. He will not force you to spend hours in and, and, and loving meditation, to spend those, those moments in his presence and, and listening to his word, engaging with the scriptures. He will not force us to do that, but that is the place that we must choose for ourselves. But here's the promise, that if we choose it, it will never be taken away from you. That relationship that you build that secret history that you build before the presence of God, it will never be taken away from you. So much of our activities done in the wrong spirit is going to be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. But Jesus gives us one of the, the, the necessary things that if we do this, it will never, ever be taken away from us. That this is an eternal promise from the words of Jesus himself. That if you will give yourselves to me in loving meditation, that it will never be taken away from you. I can almost hear it. I can almost hear it. It's, hey, guys, stop praying so much. Jay, how Boston. Hey, hey. You guys are a little bit imbalanced. You know, what, what, are you, what do you guys think you're doing? Why do you guys pray so much? Why do you guys do that stuff and day and night worship and day and night intercession and calling upon the name of God? Guys, guys, there's so much to do. Come on, come on, get on with it. And I can almost hear the voice of God saying, oh, Martha, Martha, you're troubled and worried about so many things. But Mary or J. Hal Boston, not just J. Hal, but lots of you, I'm thinking Seth and Maine, you're choosing that good part. And the promise of Scripture is that it will never be taken away from you. I mean, there's so many things that we could be doing. I mean, even the way that we approach God in a prayer meeting. I mean, I mean Lou was sharing with me just the other day, a couple months ago, where a, a friend of ours had a dream. And in the dream, he's looking at a building and he says, I don't want an anthropocentric house of prayer. I want a Christocentric house of prayer. I don't even want to just focus on all the, the different needs and different issues that are going on, though we're called to that. But at the end of the day, the only we reason we respond to that is because we're partnering with the exalted man and the man that we are exalting. And in that partnership, then we begin to see the realms of possibility that he opens up to us that Boston could be an abortion-free zone. That New England, same-sex marriage can be driven out of New England where the sanctity, he will begin to envision the, the beautiful alternative that this man who's seated upon the throne will one day bring to this region. But it's those loving meditation, those hours spent in loving meditation where we're just exalting God 
sitting at his feet, listening to his word. And then out of that listening of his word, we obey him and we take those prayers to the streets. I love even what Doug Stringer is saying, one of the most kick-butt compassion ministries that I've ever been around, that I've ever heard of. I don't know if there's anything like it that I've ever heard of. And he says, the foundation of what we do is built on the presence of God, number one. Though they are doing so much more than what most of the body of Christ is doing to serve the compassion and the poor and, have, and, and serve the oppressed and all these different things, meet real needs. I mean, the missionaries all over the place and chapters all over the place. He says, no, the foundation of everything that we do is bringing the presence of God and from that place, ministry. It's that Mary of Bethany posture that we take that God says it will never be taken away from us. And so I just want to turn just to two more places and I'll be quick. I know it's the afternoon session. It's nap time for most people. John chapter 11. And I'll just tell you the story. How about that? You guys know this story. It's where Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth and a man is raised from the dead. Um, In the beginning of the chapter, you know, the word comes to Jesus. He's outside of Bethany at the time. And word comes to Jesus that Lazarus, his friend, is sick and on the verge of death. And they say, let's go to Lazarus. The disciples say, let us go to Lazarus right now. And the Lord says, no, it's not time. This thing will not end in death and sorrow, but will end in the glory of God. And God, the master, I mean, Jesus is the best storyteller that ever lived. He's setting up the tension that he himself is going to resolve. He knows that Lazarus is about to die, but he's going to bring the truth that I am the resurrection, the truth and the life. And so he lets certain things and unfold that in the natural human mind, we, do, we can't fully comprehend, why would you do this, Jesus? But Jesus is weaving this story that when all is said and done, it's going to bring the greatest amount of glory and pleasure to the Father. And in it, he's going to reveal himself as the resurrection. So what ends up happening is Lazarus dies. And Jesus is beginning to go towards Bethany where they're all beginning to mourn. And it's three days of mourning that as they already put him into the tomb. And it's three days of mourning. And he gets to Bethany. And as he's on the outskirts of the city, it says that Martha runs out to Jesus and says, Lord, if you had only been here. Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And it's in that con- the course of that conversation that Martha affirms the truth of who Jesus is, and Jesus reveals that he is the resurrection. That it's not just to come, but that in him we can find the resurrected life. But what happens, and this is it's a side point, but it's an important point that I want to make here in the story. The main point is Jesus as the resurrection, but there's something about the heart of God that's revealed to us in scripture. It says that Martha then goes to Mary and secretly tells her, the master, the teacher is here. As soon as Mary hears that Jesus is right there, it says immediately she gets up and runs to where Jesus is. There's this attraction that she has towards Jesus of, of love and adoration and, and deep dependency and trust. You know, some commentators will say, because Mary gets to Jesus, 
And again, she throws herself at the feet of Jesus. All three times you see her in Scripture, you see Jesus or Mary at the feet of Jesus. All three times. And it reveals that she's humble, she's teachable, and she has a heart of worship. She throws herself at the feet of Jesus and she says, Lord, with a broken heart, Lord, if you had been here, I know my brother wouldn't have died. You see, some commentators are saying Martha and Mary, they have a voice of accusation and Jesus, you don't know, you weren't here, and you weren't here for us in our time of need. I don't read it that way. Just because you read the story of Mary, just every single time there's this deep trust and deep abandonment of dependency upon Jesus. And it says this, the, the, therefore, in verse 33, John 11, verse 33, it says, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Jump down to verse 35, the shortest verse in Scripture, but perhaps one of the most powerful, Jesus wept. That the eternal God-man, the man who knew no sin, the, the God who created the universe with his father is looking upon this young woman who's weeping for her brother. And he says that as he sees this, he groans within his spirit and he's troubled. And it says he weeps. See, when I read this portion of Scripture, I always ask myself this question. What's more amazing, the man who can raise the dead or the God who can weep with his friends? That somehow in our minds we, just the intellectualizing of God, that we've made him this distant, stoic, unemotional, uninvolved God in the affairs of humanity, that somehow he created the earth like clockwork and he set it into motion and he said, okay, now run. That even uh, Christians, though, we, we know that that's not true. We live with what is called like a practical atheism, that we believe him to be that way. Even if we don't believe him to be that way, we live as if he is that way. And we don't come to the Father, we don't come to Jesus as the tender, merciful God who has deep emotions and deep feelings when he encounters his friends. You don't believe me? Just look at Song of Solomon, chapter 4. You don't even have to turn there. It says this, with just one glance of your eyes. Just one turn of your neck towards me. You've ravished my heart. Remember my friend saying that word ravished in the Hebrew is labab, and it's a really difficult word to translate. And that's why you'll see a different translation in New King James, the NIV, the ESV. They all say different things with that ravish. You made my heart beat faster. The bridegroom speaking to his bride. You've, rav- you've turned my, my heart upside down inside of my chest, the John Mark McMillan version. This idea that God has deep emotions for us. I promise you, when you come into contact with that, it will change the way you think and approach God every single time that you can rest in the confidence that just with one glance of your eyes, you ravish him. What happens when a glance turns into a gaze? 
If we ravish his heart with just one of those things, what happens when you've locked eyes with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords whose eyes are a flame of fire, of passion for you? I'm not even talking about what happens to you. What happens to him? Song of Solomon, chapter 6, it tells us, it says, you've conquered my heart. I can't even fathom that. The uncreated God of the universe. Uncreated. Altogether unlike us. Yet we're made in his image. And because we're made in his image, there's something profoundly valuable in us that God desires. Do you recognize that in the saints is the inheritance that Jesus will receive? See, we, we're so focused on human depravity all the time. Do you not realize how dignified you are before the Father? That in only you, Jesus will receive his inheritance? That he's not looking for it in all the, golds of the gold of the earth, all the silver of the earth? That in weak, broken Brian, that when I say, yes, Jesus, I love you, that when I fall, but my heart is still turned towards him, that there's something that erupts inside of the heart of God that says, look, he's looking at me still. I love the song Misty Edwards sings. She says, oh, angels, oh, angels, look and see through that dark night of faith. She's still gazing at me. When we don't feel anything, we're still looking. There was 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. It says that the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the entire earth to strongly support a heart that is fully his. There's this frantic search of heaven, searching to and fro. It's a spotlight. And God is searching to and fro throughout the entire earth to look for what? To look for one person that's simply looking back at him. That as he's looking, he'll find one person that's looking up at him, saying, Jesus, I love you. I love you. And in that, something erupts in the heart of God. That's what John 11 even shows to me, that our God is a God who has deep emotions and deep passions for us. That he knows how to empathize with us. Listen, Islam's Allah never did that for anybody. Buddha he never did that for a single person. But our God is an awesome God. And yet he's near to the brokenhearted. Do we know the God we love and we serve and we obey? Do we actually know how he feels about us? When's the last time you asked that question? God, how do you feel about me? Not just God, you're so awesome and you're so majestic. That's cool. I love doing that. When's the last time you asked the question, how do you feel about me? Do you even know how God feels about you? That when he looks at you to the redeemed, he looks at the son and us in the same glance. Because in us, by Christ, through his blood, we have become the righteousness of God in him. That there is the most crazy, unbelievable, ununderstandable, if that's a word, idea that when you have given your life fully over to Jesus, he gives his life fully over to you. And that inside of you dwells him, the hope of glory. Do you realize how valuable you are? 
I'm serious. It's a real question. I promise you, you'll pray more if you do. That's pre- I'm trying to get to that point. That if you actually are confident in God's affections for you, you'll want to approach him. You'll want to boldly approach that throne of grace because you recognize he's made a way for you and me to be his friend that even in the midst of your weakness and your brokenness that he has deep emotions for us that he weeps with those who weeps that he rejoices with those who rejoices why because he's the best friend you could ever have and that's what friends do the uncreated sovereign god of the universe sitting upon his throne Complete, tra- completely transcendent, completely other than, yet still really close. That's the God we serve. This is who has made himself available to us. I don't, I want to know, I want to worship the man who can raise the dead, and I want to worship the God who can weep with his friends. I want to know them both. It's one man, it's the God man. This is the man who has the power to raise the dead and has given us that authority. And at the same time, it's the God completely uncreated who weeps and has deep emotions for his friends. This to me is a holy thing. And it's a shame because so many of us don't know it. We're caught in our web of sin and we're caught in complicated circumstances that we have no confidence in the blood of God, in the blood of Jesus to make us clean, to make us whole, that when we get up again, right there again, that's outrageous. It is outrageous. But we don't even fully comprehend that is the God whom we serve, that every time we get up again and say yes to him, his heart is towards us. He doesn't withhold himself from us. He doesn't give us the cold shoulder because of our immaturity. This is, it's Christianity 101, but we've gotten so far from Christianity 101. The grace of God has been revealed to all men through Christ Jesus. This is the God. I'm serious. This is to me the foundation of why you will pray night and day. Why? Because he's worth it. When you realize what he's done for us, listen. One third of the angels rebelled against God, and God did nothing. He didn't lift a finger, he let them go. 100% of humanity rebelled against God, and he said, No way. And he sent himself. He sent himself because of how valuable you and I are to him, that the elect in God, that a a way would be made for us to boldly approach the throne of grace, not just so that we can be saved, but so that we can partner with him in the place of prayer and govern the entire universe, that he's looking for an equally yoked partner. And that's the desire of his heart. Last passage, Mark chapter 14. To me, if Luke chapter 10 is the outer courts and John 11 is the inner courts, to me, Mark chapter 14 is the the holy of holies, that intimate moment between Mary of Bethany and Jesus that 
is so profound in what its implications are for us of those who desire to, to live abandoned completely wholeheartedly towards Jesus. And begin in verse 3, verse 1 and 2, it begins with the crisis of Jesus' life when the Pharisees and the Sadducees are conspiring together on how they might kill Jesus. And then verse 10, the end, or after that, this portion of Scripture that we find Mary of Bethany, in verse 10 you see Judas Iscariot begin to betray Jesus. So bookmarked between the two of the major crises in the life of our Savior, we find this beautiful story of Mary of Bethany in the tension. Verse 3, it says, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. You've seen this picture of scripture. You've seen what Jesus has done. And even right now, this prophecy that Jesus had, wherever the gospel goes, this story will be told as a memorial to her. That prophecy today is fulfilled in our midst again. And you see this picture of Mary of Bethany, an orphan child with just brothers and sisters, and likely that when the parents died, they gave Martha the house as her inheritance, and it's likely that her parents, Mary's parents, gave her this alabaster flask of very costly oil. About a year's wages, it tells us in, in the book of Matthew. About a, a year's wages, which is a lot of money. A year's wages. And Mary is the only one of all of Jesus' disciples, even the 12, the closest 12, even the three, and even John the Beloved. They don't recognize what Jesus is about to do. But somehow Mary, because she was sitting at his feet, continually listening to his words, she recognized that Jesus, what Jesus was about to do at the Passover. She remembered what John the Baptist said about Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And she took Jesus' words seriously when he says, I'm going to go away, I'm going to die. But in yet three days, I'll be raised from the dead and I'll be with you again. And the disciples had no understanding of what Jesus was saying because their vision of the Messiah was a conquering Messiah who wouldn't come in on a donkey. But Mary somehow recognized that the Passover was just yet a few days away, it tells us in this scripture, and she recognizes that Jesus, the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, and what he's about to do, she takes his word seriously. And she says, what can I do? Not because I, I, I'm going to earn my salvation, not because I'm going to earn my affection, but because I've encountered this man so thoroughly that I just want to give everything I have to him. 
So you can almost imagine Mary contemplating, what do I have that I could give the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Is everything. You can almost imagine her mind quickly go to her bedroom where this alabaster flask of very costly oil is sitting there, representing her past, her present, and her future. It represents her past because it's the only thing that linked her to her father and mother, gave it to her as an inheritance. It represents her present. It's the most valuable thing she currently has. But it yet represents her future because it was given to her parents as an inheritance, likely to be given as a dowry to her future husband, that she might have financial and, and physical security in the days to come. Because back then, you couldn't get married unless you gave this dowry. But Mary of Bethany looks at this alabaster flask of very costly oil that will mean everything. It will mean she has nothing left to herself. No financial security in the future. Only the ability to trust God completely and to show her love for him. She grabs this alabaster flask of very costly oil. I can imagine she's crying and weeping as she bursts through the door and she's the only one who knows what she's about to do and she removes the top off of this alabaster flask of very costly oil and it says in the different parts of scripture she she breaks the flask. Meaning she knows she's not going to just pour a little bit on. She's going to break it all and she'll never get it back. She takes this alabaster flask represents everything she has, everything of security in her own life. She breaks that flask and pours it over Jesus' head. You can imagine that they're all chatting away and all of a sudden the, the fragrance of love begins to permeate the whole room. Everybody stops. Everybody stares. And for a moment, everybody wonders, what in the world did And then all of a sudden, the people sitting there in the room begin to berate, uh, berate Mary. It says they begin to criticize her sharply. They say, Mary, you crazy woman, what are you doing? That's worth a year's wages. You could have sold that and given that to the poor. Say, I promise you this. I promise you this. A heart that shows radical passion and devotion for Jesus will rock the status quo every single time. And when that status quo is rocked, even the most religious amongst us will begin to criticize you sharply. Why? It's because every heart knows, every redeemed and and purchased heart knows that this is the logical Not illogical, but the logical response of a heart that's been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. And you're exposing the barrenness of our choices in saying no to a heart that's completely given in devotion to Jesus. I mean, these are the guys who in 50 days, Pentecost, are going to be empowered And these are going to be the super apostles of their day. I always think of like Reinhard Bonnke. You know, it's like 
the main guys that are, the church is built on the foundation that these men are going to set in just 50 days. And it says they begin to criticize her sharply. In John, it just says Judas. But in Mark, it's Peter there being narrating the story to Mark, and Mark writes it down. And Peter goes, no, it wasn't just Judas. It was all of us. It's this man who, I love the way I think of it at least, is that Peter was the man who rejected Jesus once. To him who is forgiven much, he loves much. Peter recognizes this storyline. He says, God, I just want, we were all guilty. And this is, exposes all of our hearts, the barrenness of all of our hearts, yet Jesus, in the midst of it all, it says, leave her alone. She's done a good thing for me. She has prepared my body beforehand for burial. Can you imagine this? I mean, this thing was like oil. It's not like the cheap perfume we have today. This thing was like oil from India, they say likely. And this alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard that's on the garments of, this, of Jesus now and flowing through everything. When Jesus is going to be whipped and bloodied and beaten, stripped naked, have nothing, the thing Jesus will have is the fragrance of this perfume. Can you imagine Mary Bethany? She smells like Jesus. Walking on that road to Golgotha with the cross upon his back, nothing, completely stripped naked, nothing. Yet there's one thing that comforts the heart of Jesus. It's the fragrance of extravagant devotion. And can you imagine that Mary, one of the few who, who, who go to Jesus at the cross, they say, what's that smell on Jesus? What's that smell on Mary of Bethany? It's that divine transaction, that divine transfer, that even the sense of smell is the, in, in our memory, it's the one thing that lasts longest with us, more than visuals and more than things you listen to. It says the sense of smell is the thing that lasts the longest with you. And this is the thing Jesus takes to the cross. This is the privilege that Mary has only one person in history, but I tell you what, what kind of privilege will we have if we give our lives to Jesus completely, to follow the lamb wherever he goes? Foxes have holes and the birds of the, uh, uh, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Sell all your possessions, give to the poor and follow after me. That these are the radical demands of Jesus. But when you realize who he is, it's worth it to waste your lives at his feet. Why this waste, they ask him. And you, I just, I love the way Nate Saint answers this question. They would, you know, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, those guys who went down to Ecuador to reach the Aka Indians. And they get martyred in the process. And they're, they're some of the best, and the, bright, the best and the brightest of their generation. And they say, People ask us all the time, why would you live, waste your lives as missionaries? Why would you do such a thing? You have such a, a promising career and future ahead of you. Why would you waste your lives as missionaries, possibly to die, and nobody knows what you're doing, and nobody knows where you're eyes. And he says this, what they don't realize is that everybody's wasting their lives on something. But when the bubble has burst, what of eternal significance will they have to show 
for the lives they've wasted. I think there's some of you in this room, even today, the Lord is asking you, why? The Lord is, there's, there's indignation around you. And people are saying, why this waste? And the Lord is looking on to say, what's your response? Am I worth it? And it has nothing to do with measuring up. And it has nothing to do with earning our salvation. That's the free gift. But to follow Jesus means to give it all away. To give everything. See, people always say, well, sell all your possessions, give to the poor. That wasn't a universal command. That's true. It wasn't a universal command. At least I don't believe it was a universal command. But that doesn't negate the fact that he might ask you, and will you be willing? Because God will confront every single idol of your heart. And he's more precious than our possessions. He's more precious than the people around us. He's more precious than all of our plans. That Jesus is worth following. And Jesus is worth breaking the alabaster box of your lives over him. Amen. Let's stand, Grace. You want to lead us into a time of worship? Thank you, my brother. Thank you. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray for us right now. Not anybody laying hands on you or anything, but if you're saying, God, I want to give everything I have and everything I am, and there's even specific things that the Lord is bringing to your attention right now. I want to pray for two people. This is the first group. I want you to raise your hand and say, this, that's me. I want to give everything I have, and I even know there's certain areas, idols in my life that the Lord is touching right now. And I want to give it all, Lord, help me today. If that's you, raise your hand. The second group of people that I want to pray for, and just keep your hands raised. The second group of people that I want to pray for is those who, who say, I know Jesus, but I don't know his emotions, the deep passion of his soul for me. But I want to know him today. That's all of us probably, right? But... I just want you to raise your hand as well, and I want to pray for each other. I want us to, to pray for one another right now. If you're raising your hand, why don't you just come up to the front, to the altar here? We're just on the aisles. You don't have to come up to the altar. I just want you guys to get comfortable in the presence of God. Let's not wait for somebody to get into a Western mindset and charismatic church mindset and wait for someone to lay hands on us, and then we can feel it. I want us today. This is about you and God, and you can come right up to the middle here. This is about you and God and doing business with God today, saying, God, all of my life for all of you. I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. There's some of you even in this room who were specifically called even at a young age as missionaries, but to be missionaries in a cross-cultural context, but because of fear of what people might think of you, you you've, you've buried that in your plan, but God's saying, no, I still want that. Are you willing to waste your life as a missionary? 
So as grace leads us into a time of worship, I don't want you even to look at me or to Lou or anybody to, to lay hands on you right now. It's just you and God doing business and saying, God, all of my life for all of you, it's worth it, God. Make me like Mary of Bethany. Cause me to break my alabaster flask of very costly oil over you because you're worth it.